I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the Mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, how the invention of the rudder revolutionized the world of sailing forever. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times, a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Thanks, Todd. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Scott. Uh, what what do we have planned for today's episode? Today we're going to uh, talk about the rudder. Uh, the rudder is one of those great things in a ship, and the development of it has been maybe could be argued, I will argue, that it may be the most important technological development in 2,000 years, maybe, uh, up until recent developments such as flying planes, uh, computers. But up until then, it might have been the rudder because it meant people could explore and go into the oceans and travel further away from shore. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Everybody's heard about the rudder. Uh, We've even used the phrase to be rudderless, which we probably felt aimless at times, and it would be an appropriate phrase. We might even know that boats and planes have rudders. And that they are and function as a control surface. As sailors, we probably don't think about our rudder very much. Uh, In terms of maintenance, it's one of the more solid pieces of the boat outside of the pure hull. And it's interesting that it plays such an important part in sailing, in terms of direction, and it's key to maneuvering. I'm going to tell a quick story is is that I I ran a vessel assist or boat US, I think it's called now, in which we use small boats, uh, power boats. Uh, One boat had an outdrive, the other didn't. It was... uh, 270 Detroit diesels in them, solid boats, solid little boats. But they were basically built to maneuver in and out of a marina and to tow boats. That's basically what we did. But I learned more about boat control and handling skill-wise by doing that job than I had uh driving a 260-foot fed ship or sailing on a 190-foot sailboat or being in a little sailing dory or International 14 in any of those types of boats. I learned more in how to maneuver and how to use the rudder and in many cases, how not to use the rudder. There's this interesting thing between the rudder and the propeller. 
Okay, all propellers thrust in a particular direction. Most people, when they first get on a boat, don't know this, but they should probably, while tied up to the dock, feel which way the boat pulls in reverse. Because it's going to drive you forward in a straight line and you won't be able to tell the pitch of the prop. So you put the helm, the rudder, at midships. That's straight. You put it in reverse and see which way the stern of the boat pulls. And that'll tell you pretty quickly if it's left or right hand turning screw. Most times you'll find that it probably goes to the left. Now, I'm saying this is because once you bring the rudder into play, the rudder, you see the rudder is controlling the direction that you're going. That's the surface. The prop is just going to do the same thing. So sometimes you have to take the prop out of the equation in order to say, go astern or back up. So you just get yourself moving a little bit and then you can move the rudder and the control surface of the rudder will actually guide your direction. But if you leave the prop turning, that prop is going to create enough thrust in a particular direction, either left or right, that'll either accentuate your backing up to one, to one side or it will um, modify it and slow it down from going in that direction. That's why you always give it a little bit of gas with the prop, turn it, and then let use the rudder as the water runs over the surface as you're moving one and two knots backwards, okay? This is just a little insight that I had from moving boats because you really learn how to do it when you have a boat tied to your hip and you have to put it into a small space in a marina and everybody and his brother standing out there watching you do it. Um, failure is not an option. But this gets us back to the importance of the rudder. I think you could probably draw a conclusion that the development of the rudder was also pivotal in the development of humankind. And without it, humankind might be vastly different. Let me explain. The Chinese invented the inboard rudder a thousand years before the Western world did. This afforded them the ability to navigate an open ocean. And this is where history gets really strange. The Chinese never went into the open ocean. They were coastal sailors. Even though they had advanced navigational skills, they built much larger boats. I mean, the first boat that had a rudder in in a thousand years before, Zhu Fu, he, he had a rudder that was built in to the boat and the boat was 450 feet long. That was a thousand years before Columbus. 450 feet. It's a big vessel even today. So they had this, the Chinese had invented the rudder because in the open ocean, putting a paddle, which they use as a rudder, 
over the side was much too difficult to handle stress-wise. Paddles would break easily in the ocean. There's a lot of pressure that's put on a rudder. And paddles on the outside are, are oars that served as rudders or rudder oar would break. They can't stand the pressure, the waves, the wind in open sea. Yeah, one guy, two guys, three guys holding on to this rudder. It's just too much to steer. And in some cases, the boats had two rudders. The galleons, you see, they had two rudders, one on each side, rudder oars, okay, on the outside. And it it took 10 men and a boy to, to just handle one. So ironically, the Chinese never really went into the open ocean, although they they did flourish um, around the coasts, around Asia, and they had literally sailed all the way around the coast, all the way around India, all the way down to the eastern coast of southern Africa to Mozambique. And this is a thousand years before. Those were regarded as treasure ships. When they came back, they said, oh, this is a lot of treasure. We really appreciate it, da 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 But we're not going to do this anymore because we have a Mongol invasion coming. So the Chinese shifted their focus to land and to the interior of Asia. And it's the same for the Japanese. In the same period, they were closed off uh, for um, far, uh, under any kind of foreign influence. The Chinese, like the Japanese of the same period, remained closed off to foreign influence. They chose not to go outside their sphere of influence, and they concentrated more on their interior life. And this is that whole, you know, the Asian perspective of life versus the Western perspective of life. Um, they had all the tools they could have they could have gone out and literally conquered the world at this particular point in history, and nobody would be, have been the wiser. Nobody would have even come close to stopping them. But you have to, I mean, this is, this is a very important development because the Chinese and the Japanese didn't uh, use their technical skills to broaden their ocean exploration. I mean, we saw with uh, the tsunami and nuclear plant falling apart, blowing up, and all the rest of that unbelievable stuff, where some of the debris from the plant ended up on the coast of Portland, Oregon. And, I mean, the Japanese could have gotten in a rubber ducky and, and literally floated to the New World. But that wasn't the direction they sought. They sought something probably a little bit more difficult to achieve, which was a kind of internal peace. But getting back to the rudder itself, the bottoms of boats and the way they built them were very, very key to how all this rudder business worked. Most boats at the time from, let's say, a thousand years BC, all the way through, say, Roman times into maybe, well, almost into the 15th century, 
Most of the boats were flat bottomed. They're sort of round like a snow saucer. Yeah, you ever take a snow saucer, go down the side of a, a, a hill and onto a lake and you spin around and around and around. Well, the rudder was also working as a keel. It's this, like a sharp edged skate. So you can control your destination. But most boats were basically like this snow saucer. So this began to be integrated into boats itself, the building of boats. But they weren't integrated into the boat. They were literally hung onto the back of the boat, which gave them an ability to handle the stress. But one of the things you have to understand in this very interesting development is most ports at the time were mud flats were there was there was no mole there was no uh, dock that stuck out into the water where you could you know go and sail your boat up onto or row your boat to and and then unload your goods most of the time it was a shallow place where they could run the boat up on the shore without waves smashing the boat up okay and they could unload from there and they could do their trading this is the way things went on for hundreds and hundreds of years and a really interesting example of that are the mud flats which they don't exist anymore but why la is la los angeles is los angeles is because in san pedro where you have the port of los angeles now which is absolutely is one of the largest ports in the world if you combine that port and the port of long beach which are right next to each other arbitrary line in my opinion that's the largest port in the world shipping port the thing about it was is this was all mud so the early visitors by sail could run their boat up into the mud put a ladder out or a passerelle and they can unload their goods and this was very very convenient and this is why they built the railroad to this point because it was easy for them to get shipping goods and to get goods shipped to the United States from the Pacific etc and back and forth so the Pacific Railroad actually built the mole to the ports and did the dredging but that didn't happen until like the 20th century so this is and, and of course then la grew from there la is la and it's a big place millions of people but it wouldn't have been anything if it wasn't for the mud flats and that a flat bottom boat could sail up and onto it to deliver their goods. Now, it's the first time there was an integrated rudder in the hull of a ship wasn't until 1843 when they put it in the SS Great Britain. Um, up until that time, the rudder was hung by a pintle and grudgeons on the stern of the vessel. You could look at uh, my my blog, and I'll post some pictures of the pintle and grungeons and how they're hung on the stern. This uh, this will give you a, a, a good look. 
as I said, most of the the ships that were built until the 19th century were uh, flat bottom hulled. Um, there were very few docks in which they could moor. Mostly the ships loaded um, and unloaded by coming up on the mud, or they used a tender, another boat, to, uh, to gently uh, go up and down, back and forth between the, the larger vessel and shore. So I explained the mud flats of San Pedro Bay. But there were a lot of other ports that were based uh, essentially on estuaries of great rivers. Uh, Lisbon, London, Singapore, Nagasaki, Beijing, New York, Amsterdam are just a few examples. There were essentially river banks that they could sail up in and out on the tide and transfer their, their goods. And this is where trade and cities and people developed. And the harbor became the most important uh, place for the country. Now, all of this had to happen without dredging. Dredging didn't really start until the early 20th century. And of course, then the ships became bigger, the weight became greater, um, you know, the steering oar was completely forgotten, and all of the different ideas of how to handle rudders. And now you see in some of these uh, super boats, there's two rudders, uh, different types of control surfaces. It's uh, it's really an amazing uh, development modern day on how racing boats are using their rudders to a better advantage than, than some of the standard designed rudder, which is at midships, port starboard, and that's the way it goes. But the whole concept of the idea of the rudder it sort of made me think about the psychological and sort of the influences, the intent, you know, the intent of being going in a direction that you want to go. So the ships and the technology sort of developed at the same time philosophy was developing and expressing itself in different ways. You know, the philosophy of, of art, you know, and the, the philosophy of music and dance and writing, um, how food developed. It, it was because the rudder allowed people to fulfill their intentions. And psychologically, this idea of being able to get where you want to go with some alacrity and skill made things more certain. It built a kind of confidence. And then this confidence translated into a perception. And this perception began to develop culturally and among all the peoples so that there was an intent. We're going to build this because of this. We're going to move here. We're going to trade there. Chinese and Japanese peoples, their philosophy was more about the interior world, the interior intent in a general way. Western culture took it to a whole different way of looking at it and being aggressive and being a conqueror and using ships with a rudder as a platform 
for artillery and war. Two different kinds of intents, two different kinds of ways of looking at oneself and the world. So the rudder is a very, very important aspect of human development because it's a technology, it's a technological mirror into the development of human beings. So that was a really interesting story, Scott. What made you think about telling a story about the rudder? Well, uh, having a rudder means you can follow a course. And with all the upheaval in our society and in the world today, uh, businesses closing down, uh, a lot of unemployed people, people trying to get back on track, you know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult time for people in general. Uh, I was struck by the notion that a lot of us have to uh, figure out a different course of our lives and how we're going to live them and and what our priorities are going to be so the way the rudder uh allows you to keep a course to to search out that waypoint to sail to a specific spot leads me into the idea of navigation and sort of navigating in life um one of Jack London, the great American writer, um, The Cruise of the Snark, uh, is, is a must-read book for anybody that is interested in navigation. And it's, you know, it's not a black science, a black art, but it, it's a solid mathematical science. But there's a couple of things that I think that sort of fit in with the whole idea of the rudder, which is you know, um, intending to go where uh, you you want to go. Now, it reminds me of a story. I was in um, Polynesia, and I was going to sail out to uh, an island that was on the next uh, uh, chain. I think it was Vaku, and. I didn't have a chart. This is before chart plotters and all the rest. I had been actually navigating uh, using a sextant. And that's how I first started, was using a sextant. We did have Loran, which was a radio magnetic box that you had that was very complicated and rarely seemed to work. Uh, so you trust it navigating by the stars or navigating by the sun and then going to your algorithm tables figuring out exactly where you are and so the point that i'm i'm trying to make here is is that i had left look with a chart that i had bought in a local marine store without looking at the chart at all and it's kind of almost like life you know okay here's my chart I'm going in this direction, and here's how I get there. Well, it kicks me back to the 18th century, or late 18th century, early 19th century, in which there were two meridians for which time started. 
The first was the English, GMT, which we all know today. But what few people know is that there was a PMT, which was Paris meantime. So the French Navy did all their charts using Paris as the meridian to start for zero for time. And then there's 24 time zones around the world, just like GMT, but the start spot was off by several hundred miles and Paris is south of GMT by several, like by a hundred some miles. So there's a big difference in how the charts, not how they're laid out, the islands look exactly the same, but maybe the longitude and latitude are all different because it's different from PMT to GMT. So what I did was I, I had this chart. It was a beautiful chart. I mean, you know, just a wonderful looking chart. I, sh I should have kept it and framed it. And I, I sail, I'm going to sail to Vaku. So I start sailing and it's actually just like, it's a day and a half sail from where, from, from where I'm coming from. And I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, and I use the sextant, and I'm looking at the chart, and I'm plotting my course, and I'm using the sextant. Now, my time that I'm using is based on GMT. My watch is on GMT. The ship's clock is on GMT. So I'm using the time for Greenwich, but using a chart for Paris. So I'm going, I'm going, and I get to the point where I'm saying to myself, there should be an island here. And I'm like looking around and there's nothing but water. No, no island, no nothing. And I'm, I'm like, this can't be. I, and then suddenly my whole sense of confidence began to wane. <laughs> it's like, did I really do this wrong? Did I really navigate this wrong? Well, I had just navigated across the Pacific twice using a sextant. So I knew what I was doing. I had confidence in what I was doing, but now I was I was baffled. And this gets back to the whole idea of, of in, uh, intending to go where you want to go. You know, I wanted to go here, but I, I actually had bad information. So I spent hours, I reduced sail and slowed down and started to look. And my crew was getting very worried. Like, okay, Scott, <laughs> it's like, where's the island you promised us? And to be quite honest, every time I do find an island when I'm sailing that, uh, you know, like the Azores, when I sail across the Atlantic, it's like, yoo-hoo, found it again. But the point of it keeps coming up and and I'm looking at I'm looking at it and looking at it and I start to go through every possible thing. I, I redid my math, I looked at my tables, I, I I I tried to figure out what my readings were. Did I do is there something wrong with the sextant? Am I off a degree or something? I mean I went through every very every 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 detail and finally the last detail that I get to is I turned the chart over, not because I wanted to look at the back of the chart. I turned it over just because I got something on the top of the, I got like crumbs or something on the chart. And I just flipped it over and I looked at the back of the chart and I saw at the very bottom of the chart 
that it was Paris Meridian time. And I said, oh my God, this is it. So I recalculated. I had to actually uh, turn to port uh, by like 90 degrees and sail 60 miles uh, to the north, literally to the north, because I was literally uh, about 120 miles off of where the island should be given the north and the the north south axis and the east west axis. So I ended up coming up. Uh, I, we saw the island. It's, it's got a big volcano on it, um, and you could see it from a long way away and usually you could spot an island out in the pacific and even in in the atlantic because there's usually a a cloud that seems to be hovering over the island and it doesn't move so like you could see all the rest of the clouds are flying by but you know there's just one cloud that just sort of seems to be hanging so that's and and i we got back to the island it took us uh it took us an extra um day to get to the island but I realized at that point that I had laid my course on the wrong chart. So, so you learned that when you are in a situation that... I didn't learn anything, Todd. I didn't learn anything, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you, you realized that when you find yourself that you set the wrong course and that you're in the wrong location, that... All you need to do is adjust your course to get where you need to go, and I feel like maybe maybe I'm stretching here, but there is a there's a metaphor for people who get to a certain point in life. They think they're going a certain way, and when they get there, they realize that's not where they need to be, and they need to readjust their course to somewhere. Oh else. yeah, and I I think I addressed that a little bit in um, our last episode, um, Antibe. Uh, the whiff of success. I had worked very, very hard to become, um, you know, I sailed and became a, a, a yacht captain and uh, moved up in the business, uh, drove bigger boats. Um, and I, I came to the conclusion that I had actually taken that job just to, to simply support uh, my writing. And because my writing has always been sort of the first thing, but you know it's difficult to make a, a living writing, and um, but I, I have managed since I made the course correction at that pinnacle of the yachting world to to go off and and to become a writer, and I've written films, um, and as you know, films and and television and and the podcast and blogs and published and all sorts of things so i think sometimes it's a good idea to consider certain course corrections a lot of people should be making some course corrections but just like i've written before and why haven't you left uh, another podcast that was very successful for us is that people come up with all sorts of excuses not to do the thing that will benefit them the most. Uh, it's like voting against your own interests. Um, and I think when you're forced to uh, make decisions, to change course, uh, 
you know, you have to, one, have the right chart. Make sure that's the chart that you want. And two, go in that direction and make the change. Go for it because you can't be idle. I mean, I've been on this earth for a while now, and that's the one thing I know. You can't do something half-assed because it never works. And make sure you read the fine print. Oh, yeah. Definitely read read the fine print. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I thought my crew was going to kill me, but they realized that 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 I was the only one that had any inkling of how to navigate, you know. Yeah. So it was like, you know, and if you read uh, um, The Cruise of the Snark, you, Jack London has a great line in there about, uh, you know, the the magical quality of knowing how to navigate. You can kind of hold it over everybody. Um, and I, I certainly um, did. So it was like, <laughs> it's, it saved me until I figured out the problem. Yeah. Um, so what do we have planned for next week? Well, I wanted to, uh, I've had a couple of people ask me about uh, navigation. And uh, some of our big fans, Nikki, that's you, uh, have asked where the navigation podcast is. Well, I've been working on it, and I have uh, a couple of things to say, and I think it's appropriate since we're uh, it's appropriate since we've talked about the rudder and courses and and part partially about navigation, but I wanted to get into depth with navigation, um, so I'm going to do a complete podcast on navigation next week, and it's going to be titled "The Beginning of Time, The End of Time." Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Ivisevich. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>